0: Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker.
1: Hi, I'm Alex Cunegos, and this is Political Theory 101.
0: So today on Political Theory 101, we've got a guest. We're bringing on Douglas Lane. Doug is the author of the novel Bash Bash Revolution, host of the Diet Soap podcast and the lead guy at Sublation Media. I've been on his show before, but he joins us today because he has recently written a string of pieces on free speech for a variety of dissident magazines, including Sublation, Cosmonaut, and Compact. We seem to be in a period in which many people think it's naive or reactionary to talk about free speech, so I want to kick us off by asking, Doug... Why does he feel free speech matters?
2: Well, um, if if you've read the pieces, which I know you have, you might be able to tell that I'm rather frustrated that I have to tell people on the left, and that not not including yourself, why free speech matters. I grew up. I'm in my fifties now, early fifties. I grew up on a, uh, as part of a left that understood the importance of free speech, you know, almost reflexively, but. To be, you know, clear about it, the reason free having the right to free speech matters is because uh, when you want to make any advancements, uh, have a better understanding of the world, uh, come to some sense of at least a provisional truth, um, you have to be able to withstand debate, uh, hear from uh, opinion, various opinions gather evidence and not simply base uh, your opinions or what's called knowledge on whatever the most powerful uh, factors are in society. In other words, if you you can't al- allow a state power to determine in advance what the truth is going to be, uh, you have to be able to withstand a free exchange of ideas in order to arrive at the truth. Um, I, Follow John Stuart Mill on this, uh, I feel, as though the only way to gain understanding is by testing your uh, understanding against counter-arguments, counter-evidence, um, and if you are unwilling to do so, you will never get beyond your own biases um, and you know what's called received opinion. So just to start with, we need free speech because we need to be able to think and uh, revise our opinions and 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 be able to change as the world changes
0: So in the contemporary context there seem to be particular threats emerging to free speech that are potentially distinctive or or maybe continuous with the kinds of threats that there have been in the past. Do you see, What's going on now with free speech as a a new development or as a return to a dynamic that existed in the past or something continuous that's always been with us?
2: Well, I think it's always been uh, a, a struggle to obtain true, open, free speech. In fact, as a socialist and a Marxist, I don't think we live in a society which has yet to truly achieve the realm of freedom for speech and expression and opinions um, that it would be required for a society that was actually free, both for individuals and you know for society itself. Um, however, there are times where things are more or less free. There are countries that have more uh, freedom than others. Um, in the United States, uh, we've had the strongest protection. Of speech in the world, um, uh, for a long while now. Um, it's con, you know, it, it has not been just granted to the citizens of the United States, but it's always been hard fought and hard won. Um, and I think that we, uh, you know, today are facing a new development in the war against, um, free speech. Hold on a second. Don't, don't fiddle with the door. Well, yeah, stop. Um, okay, sorry about that. I'll start again. Hopefully you can edit that out. My son decided to come and start fiddling with the door. Um, so yeah, no, I feel like it is a new development. And the reason it's a, what's new about it is the new communication technologies, and the expansive power of the US imperial state to control those uh, digital communication technologies. So we have uh, just the other day, uh, I, I'm in I'm in Colorado visiting my family. And Uh, My cousin is a a lawyer, and he was describing to me how the law has a longer memory now than it used to 20, 30 years ago. So if you were arrested for a misdemeanor or if you were summoned on a misdemeanor 30 years ago, the likelihood that that record would still be around in the age of uh, analog technology is really very small. Um, Whereas today, more and more information is more or less permanently recorded and digital archives, and things uh, stick around uh, much longer. What that also means is more and more aspects of our society can be tracked, um, analyzed, and ultimately controlled. So as our communications has moved into the realm of digital technology, as we've gone online, um, there's a few big corporations have, have become more and more central to Everyone's ability to communicate and uh, publish and express their ideas, uh, the amount of control that can be exerted by monopoly powers, including the monopoly power of the state, uh, has also increased. So I do think we are at a un- in a kind of a unique moment where the amount of control that can be exerted by the state over communication is just much greater than it had been in the past.
0: Yeah. So I noticed that in a lot of these pieces, you align yourself with Guy Debord, who, if, if you don't know him, you might in English think that his name is Guy Debord. Uh, what do you think we have to learn from Debord? Well,
2: I um, started reading Debord when I was in my 20s, in the 90s, and he was sort of my first introduction to radical thought. It, he was kind of trendy back then. Um and I think that for a long while, I kind of misunderstood De Boer. Um He's been popularized and watered down over the years. But as I returned to read DeBoer more recently, I found that as my critique of him is maybe uh, deepened, so is my appreciation of him. And particularly uh, his 1988 essay, Comments on the Society of the Spectacle, a follow-up uh, on uh, 20 years after the uh Student Worker Strikes of May in 1968 in Paris, um, the, the things that he has to say about the way the, the state manages society uh, seem to really resonate with my understanding of what's happening today. Uh, so his concept of the spectacle, which is often interpreted as a merely kind of cultural criticism of media technology and advertising and the way in which we are more and more caught up in a, a world of images and uh rather than getting to live real life uh you know th- that that kind of aspect of his critique which is there is not the full critique what what, what Boer was really saying was that it is the state's political power as expressed through the media apparatus and in other realms of life which constitute the spectacle it, the spectacle is a way of living uh, mostly mediated by the state uh, that limits uh, everyday people's participation in the creation of history in the direction. And, and, and it limits their ability to control uh, the aims of society, uh, to, to live their life historically um, and to consciously create political projects um, and social projects for change. Um, so when you think of the spectacle, this is a big concept from DeBoer, uh, not as a cultural phenomenon emerging from television or movies or magazines, but rather a state-run project uh, to guide and control uh, the population's self-understanding and understanding of the world that you can start to understand what the spectacle is. In Comments of the Society of the Spectacle, that second small pamphlet that he wrote in 1988 has always been kind of taken to be the lesser work of the two because there's an aspect of it that seems to many to be conspiratorial. But I think that's the wrong way to think of it. I think what the 1988 pamphlet does is speak directly to the way in which the spectacle is political uh, and, uh, and to point to the actual agencies and political actors that are, you know, managing and, and perpetuating the spectacle. Not that they are creating it per se, but that they uh, are the ones who are at the helm of it, and and that changes from country to country and from year to year. But nonetheless, um, every fa- every political bourgeois political party, every uh, every political power in the world today is all they're all vying for control. Over this apparatus to manage perception and acti- and the activity of the, the world's population, um, to greater or lesser degrees and in different ways. There's, he describes various approaches to this spectacular rule. Um, but yeah, I think he, that the, the Boer really does point to uh, a political reality. It may not be the very best theoretical description of what we're dealing with, but especially when he talked about disinformation in the comments of society, the spectacle, I found uh, that it was really useful. And, and some of the things he says in that pamphlet are so clear that um, it was specifically around the way that current established powers utilize uh, the threat of terrorism and the threat of disinformation uh, that it, these critiques of like the war on terrorism and the war on disinformation, we so perfect for our moment that I couldn't help but kind of want to readopt uh, a situationist uh, perspective.
0: Yeah, there is, I think, for a lot of people, this sense that we're stuck watching what goes on in the world, that we're not really able to, in any meaningful way, participate in events or change very much of anything. When you use the word apparatus, I, of course, thought of Alta serbe. Right. Yeah,
2: that he has, uh, and and that's a. Uh, I, I have to be careful with my language because I don't want to appear Althusserian, <laughs> especially in the this moment where I've been debating an Althusserian uh, on the pages of Cosmonaut. Um, but uh, I, I guess the, the there is a correlation between the notion of the spectacle and the notion of the ideological state apparatus. Um, but the difference, I think, between De boer and Althusser, at least from my understanding, is a difference between a statist Althusserian approach to understanding how uh, the, the state manages perceptions and limits people's participation in the world and limits their ability to organize for uh, political liberty. And uh, the, so that's the statist one is the Althusserian one, where there basically is no realm that is not already captured by the state. And the... The boarding one where you have a, a realm of everyday life, a realm of civil society, uh, a realm where you can wander uh, some independent working class that still exists, which might be con- manipulated or pushed into the realm of the, of, uh, the spectator's role, um, but nonetheless uh, could break from that. And uh, the other thing to considers that debord's primary target of critique was uh the left and uh, the 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 cadre the Bolsheviks the progressives um who he saw as a, as the the major force behind the spectacle, the major uh group that would endorse the spectacle uh they would do so by offering uh, supposedly radical critiques of society which were not. In fact, radical, and which were aimed only at perpetuating their own position within society, these basically today we might call call them the p m c um but the the pseudo revolutionaries uh were the targets of de Boer, to a large extent um and you know he was a councilist, so he believed very strongly in the self organizing potential of the working class um you know there are places where I would diverge from Debord, perhaps on that very point. But nonetheless, uh, I do think that Debord's understanding of ideology or the spectacle is superior to Althusser's. And that's a real condemnation of Althusser's because Althusser's output was much more vast. Debord was uh, more of a drinker than he was a writer or a theorist. And yet I think his a few books are more helpful than anything Althusser ever
0: wrote. Hmm. Yeah, so that that's interesting. So you don't think that the state has penetrated civil society to the degree that Alta supposes that it has done to the point where we are just in a statist game. Right. Uh, at the same time, you are also critical of, of Noam Chomsky's view. You seem to suggest that things have tightened up quite a bit relative to Noam Chomsky's account.
2: Yes, that's true. Um, so Chomsky presupposed in 1988 when he wrote Manufacturing Consent that, by and large, a kind of neoliberal version of a free market economy was what was mediating uh, society and particularly was what was setting up the conditions for uh, work by the media. In other words, if you wanted to start a newspaper um, in 1988, you would be faced with massive uh, competition. You would be faced uh, with probably being outgunned in terms of resources by a few big monopoly conglomerate powers uh, within the realm of civil society, in other words, other businesses, and that the competition wasn't fair. And also that um, the the kinds of opinions that could be expressed within corporate media uh, were much more constrained than people were led to believe, that there were ideological uh, blinkers uh, on the reporters, that there was a framework of acceptable opinion, that had developed out of basically the interest of corporate America as and and those interests often aligned with the interest of the state. Um, what has happened since then is that the internet has uh, fragmented media so that um we no longer have uh these big central uh sites of authoritative uh newsmaking or or other kinds of media. Um, But rather, we have 100,000 niches and uh, different demographic-led media projects. And uh, we also have social media where things can become widely known relatively at random by going viral. Um, So the internet, you know, broke up the old approach to media. Um, And then since then, the corporate powers and the state have come together to try to maintain a kind of centralized control. Um, but uh, for a time, I think, especially on social media, um, there was a centralization financially um, and in terms of property rights, uh, but there was not a centralization ideologically to the same extent as there had been in the past on the big major media platforms like NBC and CBS or the New York times. And, However, uh, the the time where there were a few big monopoly powers in the media were not as completely controlled as they have the potential to be now, because uh, in the past, you well you might be able to be put out of business by a competitor. You weren't going to have your business shut down by fiat uh, by the state in 1988, which we're on the verge of. That's being more and more becoming the norm more and more so today so if the uh the i forget the name of the act all of a sudden but the act that uh the restrict act the restrict act passes in congress that would give the, the federal government the right to just shut down media companies uh that they deem to be threats to national security um that would mean that uh even the small pockets of alternative media that might have existed in 1988 would, wouldn't exist now. It also means, uh, that the the potential for, uh, dissident, uh, understanding to arise even in a countercultural way will be flattened out. Um, and what's most depressing to me is that the, the left is facing this and doesn't see that it's within its, you know, it's its own interest to oppose these moves by the state to create a much more uniform and conformist media environment now than it it existed even when there were only two, three networks on TV and three or four newspapers of any import uh, in the past.
0: Yeah, I think if we were to think back to 2011 in the Arab Spring, at around that time, there was uh, general enthusiasm about the capacity for social media to allow Uh, independent perspectives to gain traction outside of state control. But once it became clear that that process would not necessarily lead to liberalization or democratization, and that some subversive voices might gain traction by doing that in Western societies, and in first world countries, uh, in the mid 10s, at that point, there was a move to tighten things up by Putting pressure on the owners of these social media companies like Zuckerberg, for instance, who was dragged in front of Congress over and over and over in the late 10s Mm -hmm. uh, to get them to change their algorithms, to make it harder for political content and particularly subversive political content to do well. And then in extremists, there have been cases where they have uh, even kicked people off uh, platforms for relatively uh, trivial reasons, often uh, Short bands that turn into long bands for seemingly no reason, stuff that gets demonetized or deplatformed with a very limited uh, possibility of appeal, processes that are opaque, that uh, people don't understand, that you just have to agree to as a condition of getting on the platform. And so all of this has tightened up what seemed to a lot of people, I think, in the early 10s to be a very open and and high potential environment into something which I think you're right is... uh, comparable to the 50s in terms of the way it feels, which I think invites some people to think about this in terms of, of perspectives that grew out of that experience of the 40s and 50s, invites people to think about this in terms of a uh, point of view of someone like uh, a Horkheimer or, or an Alta mm-hmm. uh, But it functions differently because it functions through these social media companies and these social media companies are always at least nominally trying to borrow from the idea that it's the ordinary users who are agitating for these measures. And uh, this is the, the kind of the other side to this that I didn't see you emphasize quite as much, the cancel culture angle where you have individual social media users using social media as a tool to attack public figures they don't like. And people worrying that their employers will discriminate against them on political or religious grounds in these cases where individuals and other kinds of organizations take on roles uh, in addition to the state in this process. And I, I wanted to ask, uh, where do you think cancellation fits into this? Uh, is, some of, is all of this stuff coming from the state, or is there also risks to speech that emerge out of civil society itself?
2: Well, here's how I think of it kind of strategically. The facts are that since around 2017 and specifically since around 2020, very markedly, the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, the CIA, and a bunch of other uh, agencies within the state bureaucracy in the United States have made an effort to direct social media companies on what should be considered... Uh, well what should be censored and then they they call what should be censored disinformation and misinformation and malinformation they have different labels um and it has amounted to the censorship of in one way or another of millions of posts um so uh, the state's direct involvement around especially you know what we've seen revealed in the recent uh court case in Louisiana and also before that in the twitter files Changes the way we should think about combating censorship, um, I think, you know, strategically. The, the question of whether or not there are, there's a community of people who support cancellation and would like to see the people who have been censored by the state censored um, is irrelevant given our constitutionally protected rights in the United States. The, the idea of civil liberties is precisely the idea that the minority is protected from the, the tyranny of the majority around speech, for instance. And you know, just because uh, a lot of people don't like what you say doesn't mean that you should be censored. In fact, it's specifically the people who might face the most opposition at first and maybe for a long time uh, that require and should be protected by the First Amendment. So... Yeah, the, the state's involvement changes the the entirety of the game. It's like it's no longer we can no longer argue about this uh, uh, along the level of whether or not cancel culture exists or whether it's a uh, an, an okay tactic within civil society for people to use on one another. Um, that is that argument has been removed because it is no longer a, a question of. Simply private actors curating their content. It is a state-directed effort to censor the all of civil society um, to control all of the information in society, and that's been said directly by the Department of Homeland Security and many other uh, agencies in the bureaucracy, and, and and you know also nonprofit groups and NGOs and so forth. This is a whole of society effort to control information. Um, so that's a, that first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say, though, is when it comes to the left's own culture and ability to fight for the kind of civil liberties that are necessary, if anything like socialism, for instance, is going to be uh, politically feasible. Um, the reason why that has become so difficult for the left to tackle, uh, why, why the left is absent from this fight and, tr- and leaving it to forces that I think are not at all reputable or ultimately uh, consistent and trustworthy to, and perhaps they're as trustworthy as the contemporary left, but nonetheless is nowhere near adequate. Um, The reason this is, this is all happening is because we did take up a, a, a censorious cultural position where if you were defending, it was just presumed if you were defending the right of someone to speak, that meant you agreed with them and that, uh, you know the the right to speak in and of itself was no longer a great value, um, but all along up until very recently, those who would advocate for cancel culture would say, "Look, this isn't censorship; it's just private curation, as it is speech itself." You know, when we d- when a private company decides not to publish something, like for instance, if Sublation Media decides not to publish a book or a magazine article or a podcast or what have you, we're not violating anyone's first amendment rights we're creating speech collectively we have the right we have first amendment rights as a company in, uh, and as a publishing venture so uh, the, the question kind of got murky uh, because of social media for the left and then ultimately the left d- decided that uh, as long as the department of homeland security appeared to be m- targeting people they didn't like they were going to look the other way and especially if uh, t- critiquing the department of homeland security might undermine the democratic party which ultimately fealty to the democratic party has turned out to be the only true value that the con- american left you know consistently holds to so
0: yeah it, it seems to me that if it's not possible to build an audience without using certain social media platforms that those social media platforms become better thought of as a utility rather than as a publisher. And so there would be a difference between sublation media and, say, Facebook or sublation media and, say, Twitter. But because Twitter and Facebook get their revenue from advertising, the advertisers uh, also become a leverage point for getting them to act as if they're publishers rather than utilities for disseminating views. Right. And so...
2: I think you're right. And um unfortunately, court decisions have gone against that argument in the past. Uh, Prager U took, I think, YouTube or Google to su- the Supreme Court to argue that they had been censored and their First Amendment rights had been violated because their videos were suppressed or taken down. And the Supreme Court decided that despite the fact that th- there was a monopoly there with YouTube – and despite the fact that the the company was not was protected from litigation from i forget it's it article 230 or some uh that's the legislation that protects them from litigation despite all of that they still nonetheless had the same First Amendment rights as a publisher and that's what the su- supreme court decided i believe but this louisiana decision um, uh, the injunction against the biden administration compelling the federal government overall to cease communicating with social media companies in in, in an effort to sense, get people censored. In other words, they can communicate with social media companies if they think that there is a criminal activity going on, but they are no longer allowed to say, take down that person's legally protected speech, they're all people who are talking on this topic, regardless of the fact that it's legally protecting speech. They're no longer allowed to do that. So the, that means that when the state is intervening with these uh, social media companies, the social media companies become entwined with the state and are legally considered state actors. The degree to which that is eliminated is the degree to which the Facebook or Google or what have you has a right to censor, and the degree to which the state is involved security, which we can grab onto the First Amendment and and say no. So in in some ways, the exposure of the state's involvement is a great asset in in the back pocket of people who care about free speech, because we now have a very substantial legal basis to combat uh, the
0: censorship, which we didn't
2: have in in the past, because we didn't know.
0: Hmm. Yeah, this is this is interesting. I, I see on the one hand a possibility that if the state is more heavily involved in structuring what social media companies do than merely, say, uh, creating a, a situation in which there can be an advertising market where advertisers can influence the social media company's behavior, then that would seem to frame those social media companies as appendage to the state in some way. Uh, that's right. I mean, and there's legal precedent
2: for, for those kinds of decisions where a, a private company has been in, considered legally entwined with the state and therefore restricted by the constitution in the same way that a state agency would be. And I think yeah. that's the case in this recent Louisiana decision, although the Louisiana injunction doesn't, uh, isn't aimed at the social media companies, but at the federal government. Um, yeah.
0: At the same time, if that's allowed to stand, then the social media companies are quite a bit more similar to something like state apparatuses.
2: If, oh, if they are no longer, if they, in other words, if the state can communicate and order censorship?
0: Right. If the Supreme Court ultimately allows the state to do this, then the social media companies will become very much like State apparatuses in that kind of altisarian sense
2: right i guess but the the thing to remember is that the that does not mean that the civil society has to accept this state um that you know the that even if there will be legal penalties against people for resisting or organizing against it even if we're forced to organize as illegal parties the civil society will still exist um, and the possibility for uh, uh, organizing and free, ex- you know, free expression to take place in some context outside of the realm of the state would still exist. It's just much better if we don't have the state you know, throwing us in jail
0: for exercising right. our rights. And our, then there's the, you know. the question of why the left isn't organizing in that kind of way isn't trying to fight on this particular issue. Do you think that the left is not standing up for free speech because the left has been in some way shaped by the state through some kind of state intervention in the way that left-wing theory is disseminated? Or do you think it's a malfunction in left-wing civil society that has produced this quiescent attitude?
2: Uh, I think it's probably a combination of both. I mean, the, uh, the, it's a combination of the fact that the left, as it stands, is primarily petty bourgeois, so the, its interests are not aligned with the, the truly universal interests of the working class. That, that would be my first stab at an explanation. So, that, in that sense, it's because of something that is emerging from civil society, the class position of the left. That, but then, um, and there's some, also there's some decisions that were made. Uh, by many leftists that were kind of conditioned decisions, for instance, to, uh, cease being Marxist and to liquidate, uh, your different various organizations into the democratic party through the DSA, I think was another, uh, very consequential aspect of the, the defanging of the left, the, the submissive, the, the creating a submissive left, um, and then uh, I also think that uh, the left, uh, like many other parts of the petite bourgeois uh, aspects of civil society, had, were indeed managed and conditioned by the state. I mean, Russiagate is a, 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 an example. Gate was a hoax. Russiagate uh, was an intentional lie, pushed upon the both the state apparatus, of, you know, was pushed into the intelligence community as a way to attack the uh, the Trump administration, but also it was a a hoax uh, that was pushed upon the American public, and that was meant to shape our political understanding. And it it was particularly taken up by the left, the left that saw Trump as some sort of quasi-fascist, a a, a very dangerous political actor who needed to be resisted or, or fought, or who was a more significant threat um, then the agencies like the FBI or the Department of Homeland Security that were aligning to combat Trump in this other way um, so you know the the values of the left that developed kind of from the class interests of the of the leadership of the left um aligned with the interests of the democratic party um and the, the kind of a myopic you know, ideological confusion developed and we, and my task, I feel like, is to say, look, we are at a point where we can clearly see what the facts were and how we were influenced. This is all being revealed to us by the state's own internal uh, investigation of itself due to the fact that we don't have a one party state and we should be able to take up this information and alter our approach to politics accordingly. We should understand that RussiaGate was a hoax, and that you know the, the attacks on Donald Trump's presidency were equally attacks on any uh, political force that might want to emerge in opposition to the neoliberal state. And you know we, that doesn't mean that we have to support Donald Trump. We shouldn't, but it does mean that we shouldn't consider any enemy of Donald Trump to be our friends. And these people, like the Bidens or the Department of Homeland Security, or these various other agencies, Dr. Anthony Fauci, none of them are friends of the Marxist left. None of them are friends of the working class. And none of them should, you know, earn our allegiance above our allegiance to uh,
0: the working class, each other, and our own future emancipation. So at this juncture, I think it's about time we get Alex in. So Alex... As you've been listening to all this, if you've got a question for Doug, give it a go. I'm thinking whether to keep it on the same track. Maybe we can go
1: back to security state stuff. Um, I just wanted to. St- yeah, feel free. Take it where you yeah. want to go. Mm, philosophy then. So, just the meaning of sublation. I guess it means to keep while changing, but that doesn't mean you elevate, right? It's just kind of maybe as Zizek talks about, this almost pointless continual I don't know spiral or not because the whole idea is as you said emancipation so it does elevate
2: yeah I think that to sublate um, would mean to elevate would mean to keep both to take something up meaning to preserve it and to transcend it at the same time so for instance the freedom of labor uh, right now the labor the working class people are free in one particular way they're free to sell their labor time in the market they don't they're not constrained to work for any particular capitalist but they have formal uh freedom and they also depending on what state they're in have political rights but but as workers they have a particular kind of freedom founded on their Personal autonomy and their property rights as workers, and I don't think that that should be abandoned, nor should it simply be the end of the road when it comes to uh, freedom. Rather, the goal for working class people is to, uh, since their work is so fundamental to society, it's the primary mediating force in society. Their their aim is to uh, fully have the to have the freedom that they're granted by the bourgeois system, uh, uh, taken up and, 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 and realized. But through realizing it, it will be transformed. It will no longer be a matter of selling their time, but rather dictating the, the, form, the forms that production takes. Since they are the ones working to reproduce the world, they will be both politically and socially in charge of constructing that work, of of setting the terms of that work. Um, So that will be both preserving the freedom of labor and transforming it. And that's what I think of as the the kind of ground floor
1: contemporary example of sublation. So is that why it's like, it's often described as in two stages, you have this, or you talk about redoubling or in one video it was like you first translate it into english then translate it into the moment this kind of yeah although you know, you know that was a mistake that was an that was
2: an oh. essay not a video and and it turns out Horkheimer had written was originally delivered his lecture which was transcribed in english so there was only one need, you only need one level of translation i was being too clever by half i thought Horkheimer must have not you know written must have written in german and I was wrong. He had delivered that lecture that I was quoting in English. So it only needed to be translated from English into the contemporary moment. That was it. But, um, yeah. But, but I do think that there may be a doubling. Like the first step would be in terms of struggling for, for uh, socialism. The first step would be to insist upon the formal freedoms that you're supposed to have in, under, within bourgeois society. And then the second, uh, step would be to organize to resist the forces that emerge to try to, to deny those rights being realized. That will, because the rights of those bourgeois rights are self-contradictory, uh, due to the commodity basis of society, amongst other things. And for the worker, working class to insist upon, let's say, full employment. Will mean that they will have to withstand the reaction of the big capital, first of all, the big capitalist monopolies as their bottom line is threatened by uh, the power that wage labor will accrue as they manage to insist that everyone have the right to work. Um, it will make it a very, very much a labor dominated market when it comes to job seeking. Um, and, there will be a lot of political resistance and, and perhaps even violence in reaction to that, uh, demand. But nonetheless, you know, knowing that that would come, the working class, uh, if they was organized to persist and to insist upon its rights under bourgeois law, it would nec- necessarily seek greater and greater power politically to be able then to transcend the, those forms of freedom and invent new forms of freedom based on uh, something other than capitalist
1: relations. Is that resistance from the bourgeois then? is um, If I give you a quote from Zizek, and then I'll say the second part of it. So the first part is, the very moment of sublation, idealization, the circle, has to finish in a new moment of immediacy. And then the second moment, in which... The sublation is reborn and the other releases itself into nature. And Zizek talks about producing the monarch, how the form of the monarch is completely different from the rest of society, because it's um, you know, biological, it's not democratic. And is that kind of what you're getting at with resistance uh, to working class freedom? That, yeah, it's just a new moment of immediacy. I don't really know what these terms mean. And yeah. Well, you know,
2: uh, while I'm a fan of Žižek in terms of as I think he's a helpful uh philosopher to read alongside reading like Hegel and Marx, I don't always agree with where he ends up politically. Um and on the question of civil society and the state and who like he I, I read an interview he said years ago that When asked, you know, which force was more progressive in society—the state or civil society—he would he thought it was the state. So I would like disagree with him on those kinds of fundamental, seemingly immediate political questions. Um, But if if I can pick if I can pick up what your question is here, when um, what what I will say is this: the the arrival of truly uh, working class power, like the, the arrival of the dictatorship of the proletariat, would not, meet, would not be the end of the revolution. It would be the beginning, because this, when the working class had obtained uh, enough political power to uh, enable itself to have the freedom to transform the foundations of society, to transform production, and to continue to insist that everyone had the right to work, um, the task of transformation of, of society would still exist and some new uh, mediating structure, some new ideological structure, some new immediate, so called immediacy would have to arrive. And then once that had taken place, I don't think that would mean that, you know, there would be no Difficulties, You know, we'd all it'd be like Christ coming back and we'd all live in perfect harmony and the lamb and the, the lion would lay down together and all of that. I think that what would hopefully occur is that a really enacted freedom would be possible so that as contradictions and, and difficulties emerge, everyone in society would have the at least the capacity, if, if not the inclination or uh, necessarily... Uh, You know, the guaranteed ability, but they would have the capacity to attempt in a free way to overcome uh, the whatever new contradictions come along. But but from where I'm sitting right now, I'm very comfortable not knowing precisely what would happen if the working class within civil society were to be able to politically organize to take real power. Like, I don't feel it's necessary for me to be able to spell that out. I just am comfortable sitting on basic liberal principles, which is everyone has to be free if we're going to have a whole society that is able to advance. The free, free ex, expression and free speech is the only way to arrive at the truth. And that uh, the working class um, are the ones responsible for maintaining the world as it is. And therefore, and maintaining, reproducing the world as it is, therefore, they should also have the political power and social power to transform the world, to, to, so. to, to create change, to live in a linear way, historically, rather than in this false repetition
0: uh, that, that the spectacle imposes. So I want to throw something in here. Uh, you know, someone like Habermas in legitimation crisis would mm-hmm. argue that bourgeois values develop over time. And as the contradictions between these values and the bourgeois state's actions become increasingly evident, this kicks off legitimation crises. And that forces the state to either make concessions or engage in repression. If it chooses repression, it can't sustain that repression across time. So eventually there are concessions. Once those concessions are made, uh, then these conceptualizations develop further, the values develop further. And eventually that produces another legitimation crisis, which leads to a further question of repression or concessions. And that over time in this way, bourgeois values become more muscular and more insistent. And the state is gradually domesticated by increased citizen participation and the expansion of civil society. Would you have any truck with that version of Habermas? Or do you think that there's something wrong in that account?
2: I don't mind that version of Habermas, except that Habermas... You know, and I'm not a Habermasian, so that means I, I haven't read him deeply or or anything. But my understanding is Habermas turned away from uh, a Marxist conception of the world, where what was most significant was not merely any and all sensuous expressions, but rather productive ones. In other words, while civil society is important and the expression within civil society is very important. Um, what is fundamental are the social relationships around production, uh, which have to be altered if the contradictions are, if we're going to really transcend the contemporary contradictions that we seem to be on what I would call sort of a static kind of level of repeat because of the basic form of commodity production hasn't been overcome. And that's what is most central to our society now. And you can try to create better and better and more and more free versions of other forms of expression and other social relations. Um, and, you know, you need to at least protect that those realms if you're going to organize politically uh, to change production. But if you'd never aim at changing the realm of production and the social relations around production, if you never break from the commodity form, you're, you're, you're not going to be able to have this evolutionary approach to the development of socialism, because there's something fundamental going on that maintains the class society and maintains the same kinds of contradictions again and again.
0: Yeah. Sticking with this 70s Habermas and leaving aside where he eventually goes, I think there are some tensions between this kind of account and what we, and what we get out of De Boer, insofar as uh, it doesn't seem to be the case in DeBoer that we are having this progressive sequence, that something is disrupting that sequence and that it's not uh, functioning, that civil society and the state don't relate to each other in this way, uh, in this kind of uh, almost Reinhardt Koselleck kind of of way where society has one set of values and the state has a different set of values or a different set of actions. These things don't align and the contradiction between the two necessarily produces revolutionary activity or meaningful reform. Uh, It seems that It's more complicated than this, that we can't just posit uh, a state society split with values attributed to one uh, that are different from those attributed to the other in and of itself producing a kind of progress. Uh, Mm. And I I guess my my question would be, what do you think is the the core reason that mere value difference between civil society and the state uh, doesn't produce constructive political change? The core
2: reason that the the difference between the values and the interests of the state and the interests within civil society that the contradiction between those interests don't uh, create conditions where uh, political movements emerge to constrain the state. is that what you're asking yeah um, i I think that uh in fact. History is a process of, you know, one step forward, two steps back and that there is that both the working class and uh, the left are relatively free and that we rather than looking for a mechanistic explanation between civil society and the state to explain our own behavior. We actually have the capacity to uh already now to analyze our own defeats and to attempt to change our our direction I mean that's maybe my naive hope like uh, when I look at the Russiagate conspiracy, for instance, the Russ- great, the Russiagate hopes um, and see how that's led to empowering the state and how the left is complicit in that i don't think i need to go beyond understanding our mistakes within our own self-organizing to uh, come up with an explanation as to why that happened like we the the, the question might be why did we th- decide that a social democratic turn around bernie sanders through the democratic party was the best most realistic approach to creating a movement or a political force for for change after the economic crisis of 2008 and the the answer to that you know there's multiple answers for that but I think one of the the answers to that is that we have uh never fully taken up the defeats that we've experienced in the past and have always uh We're we're believing that, you know, some outside force is suppressing us rather than taking self-responsibility for understanding our own failures and conditions and and altering ourselves. you know.
0: So you wouldn't try to give, say, a theoretical account of why the left was uh, very robustly mobilized in the face of, say, uh, the Red Scare in the 50s, but wouldn't be mobilized now. You would say that that is... uh,
2: I, could, I think you have to give a historical. Question. You have to give like both a historical and theoretical account. So you'd have to say, okay, what were the differences uh, within the left? What what was, uh, you know, is the difference between the neoliberal period and the Fordist period, uh, uh, some sort of factor in the in the change in the in the understanding of speech and the need for. Uh, to, to try to protect speech, you know, is a disappearance of really existing socialism a, a factor? But these are all historical facts rather than simply theoretical ones. It's not as though there's a way the state operates outside of the changing conditions of, of history. And, um, but I, I happen to think we are in a moment where we've got enough self understanding about our own con- contemporary historical moment that there, we should be feeling a pressure to break from the Democratic Party, to attempt independent politics and to take up the task of maybe doing both theoretical and, and historical work to to ground our our efforts. But but I, I uh I don't you know I, I feel like if I can just point to the the current failures that you know that should be the beginning of a radical reexamination of, of our politics on the left.
0: Yeah, I guess I, I ask that because some people who uh, like Fordism or think Fordism is useful or like European social democracies or think their institutions or policies are useful would argue for them also on the grounds that they produce a better cultural discussion or a better level of class consciousness or a greater willingness to, uh, say, fight against the state's narrative.
2: Right, so my answer to that would be that, that that may or may not be true, but unfortunately uh the internal contradictions of capital uh emerged in the 70s and the fordist period ended and we can't simply will our way back to it and because it can, the the overall historical conditions to create a fordist like I'm not an amateur. Say I don't think that we can just uh, control the money supply and then control the and, and overcome the contradictions within capitalism. So uh, you know we'll we'll have to uh, organize politically within th- this current moment, which has neoliberal conditions or post neoliberal conditions, uh, rather than try nostalgically to return to you know FDR's time or the New Deal or. Uh, You know, the welfare state as it was in Europe, you know, in in the 60s or something like that. It's just we we were, and any attempt to return uh, to what the other thing to understand is like the Fortis period was a triumph of capital over socialism at the time. It was not some great stride forward for socialism then, it was a defeat. So to try to, move back to a previous defeat rather than the one we're facing now seems back truly backwards to me and misguided. We, we we suffered the defeat of the new deal stomping out socialism, you know, in thirties. And now we're, and up until the moment when neoliberalism arose, the new left was opposed to the Fordist States operations. And then as soon as neoliberalism took hold or shortly after we started pining for our previous, you know, horrors um so i you know i just i think we have to operate within contem- the contemporary reality rather than you know longing to repeat a previous defeat we just suffered a defeat let's try to work within that one
0: i think there are some people uh, mostly on the right but some on the left who are interested in disrupting global trade for the purposes of restoring some capacity uh, to individual states to go their own way or uh, to not follow the competitive economic imperatives that uh, free trade and uh, yeah. high level of capital mobility generate. Right, I mean, of no, I, you don't, would, I don't- All that you would take as a nostalgist.
2: Well, no, I wouldn't entirely, it, to the extent that you, look, um, if you're gonna try to go through the Republican Party or the Democratic Party to implement the kinds of changes that you think are necessary to, uh, to uh, create conditions for the for everyday people to be able to have more power politically, you're just deciding to align with one faction within the state or another uh, in their efforts to continue to manage the system as it is. And you're not actually turning to the public to create a new force in society. So, um, So on that level... Yeah, I, uh, I I think that, that working within the contemporary bourgeois parties is a mistake. But that doesn't mean that I would have, you know, ne- reflexively oppose Brexit or uh, have strong feelings one way or another about issues about dollar dominance or, you know, these things are uh, issues that would have to be Considered and taken up from within a new strategic outlook, which is what are we doing? How are these things helping or hurting us to organize within civil society for a new political party to, to emerge? Rather than, you know, what do we think would be best for the best conditions within this established order for us to one day theoretically, uh, you know, break from it? Like we should just break from this established order now and try to organize within civil society under the condition while fighting to maintain the, the rights to do so.
0: OK, so you wouldn't take, say, Brexit to be an attempt to create the kind of disruption to trade uh, that prevailed in the 30s and facilitated uh, both a more revolutionary attitude on the part of uh, workers insofar as they... Uh, their local national economies were more dependent upon them than they were 30 or 40 years ago when there was a larger amount of international trade. You wouldn't see that as necessarily linked to an attempt to create you know, pre-World War II conditions.
2: Uh, well,
0: I I wouldn't
2: necessarily see Brexit. I mean, the vote for Brexit was done for a variety of reasons. I wouldn't say that the people who voted for Brexit were, you know, necessarily reactionary or nostalgic for a time that they can't return to or anything like that. I think that it was a reflection of what were, was in the interest of us, uh, the majority of the population as they were struggling against real oppression in the moment. Um, and I so I just don't think that the degree to which we limit our vision to policy proposals like that, as opposed to directly trying to create a, a party for socialism within civil society, to the degree to which we kind of abandon the project to create a new force and get subsumed under the framework of the contemporary moment, which will never include returning to Fordism. It might return to post-neoliberalism or something like that, which might have some elements that reflect Fordist elements, but so do so does neoliberalism? So, uh, yeah, um, but I'm not. Maybe I'm not quite understanding your your question. Am I missing answering your question
0: with these answers? Well, the uh, the parsing I was doing there was really about. Uh, you know, earlier, you said that we have to accept that we are operating under neoliberal conditions, and when we say what neoliberal conditions are, I associate neoliberal conditions very much with. The economy that emerged as a consequence of the GATT and WTO trade rounds, which exposed those Fordist workers to much higher levels of international competition from the proletariat in developing countries, uh, and therefore eroded the ability of those workers to extract uh, higher wages from their employers as their employers could increasingly credibly threaten to employ workers in developing countries rather than them, uh, and of course to, to automate around the same time that trend was also
2: Right, well, just to, a when, I, when I say we have to accept that we're working under neoliberal conditions, that doesn't mean that we have to accept those conditions as permanent. It's just that our starting point is not, we can't push our way back to better, what we think of as better conditions and start from there. We're going to have to fight whatever, if we're, yeah, so we very well could oppose NAFTA and GATT. We could organize politically against neoliberal projects and we pro- and we should. But we shouldn't expect that the background conditions are going to be the same as they were under under Fordism, which was basically a period of boom, economic boom, which gave which made it easier for uh, the capitalist class to withstand certain kinds of demands from workers and create slightly better conditions in society and to create a welfare state. We're going to have to understand the neoliberal conditions are more cutthroat, and we're going to face more violent and dramatic reaction to our efforts to insist upon uh, something like universal uh, uh, labor rights, you know, everyone having a job. It's like we, 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 this idea that, well, let's work through the state to roll back history to a moment where we think we, that we think we like better. That has to be rejected, but that doesn't mean. Oh,
0: yes. I completely agree with that. Yeah. I, I, I'm talking about I think there are some people who are going, well, what were the conditions under which it was possible to do various forms of political activity that seem to be excluded now? Uh, And those people, I think, are trying to create material conditions that unlock those possibilities. And oftentimes, those people are not thinking about the 50s, because they think of the 50s, of course, as a time when political possibilities were very much circumscribed. But they're thinking of, say, the interwar period. And the potentialities that they thought were generated by the world wars. And I think one of the things that is missed by a lot of these people is that that period involved the world wars and major conflict. And so people who imagine that they could uh, create a set of revolutionary movements without that kind of conflict uh, or who think that they could uh, disrupt global trade uh, to that kind of degree without that level of conflict. I think, are not being very realistic. But I kind of wanted to dig into that a little
2: Yeah, bit. I agree with you on that. Um, uh, but on the other hand, we may be facing something along the lines of that level. I mean, maybe not a world war like we had in World War II, but we certainly seem to be facing a war that involves the major powers that it, in a way that they, it hasn't since World War II. Yes. So
0: this this conflict doesn't prevent, say, uh, companies in the United States from leveraging, say, workers in Vietnam against their uh, domestic worker base. True. Yeah. It hasn't disrupted trade to the degree that the World Wars did in the early part of the 20th century, which made uh, capitalists much more dependent on local conditions and much less able to leverage uh, international dynamics.
2: Yeah, I I think that we are unlikely to return to a moment where capital isn't going to be able to call upon the the world's proletariat to and manage it to meet its needs. But what we so what we might aim at is organizing internationally ourselves uh, in in some way. Like when I think back on the moment uh, when Greece was, uh, you know, when Syriza had power in Greece and there was a Uh, a a call for Grexit, you know, for Greece to exit the European Union and create its own sovereign currency and break. Um, And the reasons why that explain why Syriza rejected that, um, one of them is that they didn't have any uh, international or, or even transnational proletarian left movement to coordinate with to to Uses leverage against the European Union. They were just acting, uh, you know, without much of a base at all uh, independently, uh, basically begging the EU to give them better conditions. And uh, whereas if there had been an effort to organize internationally uh, amongst, let's say, the most disadvantaged nations during the economic crisis, there may have been more potential to insist on better conditions and to insist upon, uh, you know, the more political power for this international political party or movement that would have included Syriza, but wouldn't have been, you know, wouldn't have included Syriza alone.
0: Yeah, a lot of these electoral systems make this a bit difficult because even if you do have a competitive party that is interested in all of these different countries in pursuing some kind of major internationalist change, uh, these parties have to be in power at the same time, and the cruelties of the electoral schedule often militate against that. Yeah, I know. Even in cases where you do have all of them.
2: I mean, but here's, here's what I think ultimately it's like these kinds of conversations are the kinds of conversations that should, we should be having within some sort of socialist party, independent of the Democrats or Republicans in the United States, independent of Labor and the Tories in, in the UK. You know, that, that facing these difficulties will be a part of becoming an independent political force. And, uh, and we can't, we can't expect to have already solved the difficulties before we begin. Um, and, I, and I certainly know that I'm not politically savvy enough to have solved them already. <laughs> you know, I, I, it took me a while to even figure out that the Twitter files were important, let alone, you know, how to coordinate, you know, you know the electoral schedules of multiple nations whose parties names I often don't even know. Right. So, but anyhow, that's, that's where I'm thinking. That's, that's my line of thinking right now. So it's kind of humble, really.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it, It is. I, yeah, I think difficult to try to plan these things out in advance. It's, it's challenging in the States to envision how a third party would get rolling but again, those are more practical questions. Yeah, I mean, I think we'd have to accept it would take a while.
2: And like we wouldn't, we'd have to accept like in 2024, the left, the radical Marxist left would not be a player. We, we, we just wouldn't have someone to put up. We wouldn't have any interest in who won. We might want to know what the, the outcomes were going to, we might expect the outcome of it to be because if there's going to be a constitutional crisis in the United States, it would be nice to be able to speak to it. Um, and be able to or maybe organize around it to have a, some understanding of what, what's coming. Um, but, you know, but I don't think we would be in the position within a year to stop Trump from taking power again or stop Biden from taking power again or, or, you know, get Cornell West elected or anything like that. We'd have to accept that for the moment, we've been, we've suffered a massive defeat and we have to start again. And we have to accept that we're not going to immediately be able to change the world overnight, but but instead we're going to have to try to do the work of developing a new political project.
0: A lot of U.S. states have laws that make it difficult for parties to get going if they don't work with primary systems, or certainly if a party gets large enough that it starts to win any kind of major election, then primaries tend to get imposed on it and mm-hmm. primaries become a procedural mechanism that makes it difficult for these parties to keep out outside money and entryists.
2: Yeah. I mean, I would just say that perhaps all these leftists who got involved with Bernie Sanders might try four years where they're not elect, their politics aren't defined by electoral politics. How about that? Why don't we try organizing, you know, in within work, places, why don't we try to organize to protect constitutional rights uh, and not try to put up candidates right away and not not primarily concern ourselves with the filling the seats of the, the Congress or the bureaucracy or, or setting policy immediately. I mean, fighting policy, yes, saying no, sure, but I just don't think we should immediately expect to have a positive political force Able to shape uh, our conditions overnight. Hmm. That's, I mean well, that's why people are calling me a pessimist, maybe.
0: <laughs> I yeah, I am probably more pessimistic than you are on this point. I, yeah. I look at it as versions of this have been tried for since the 60s, versions of uh, socialist parties outside the Democratic Party and something resembling neoliberal conditions. Yeah have been tried in the States for a long time. With repeated failures to the point where we have so many uh, older people who can come and tell us about the time they tried to start this third party or that third party and all the problems that they had, mm-hmm. uh, most well, of which what, what do you think we younger people the DSA? are too young to know.
2: Like, Why did, why did the DSA get formed? Like, what was the failure within the Socialist Party that ended up with the compromise of trying to con- shape the, the, the role of the Democrats? through the DSA in 1980. Do you know? Because I don't, I've read about it and I don't have a full understanding.
0: I think really the creation of the primary system in the States greatly circumvented the ability of third parties to get going um, because ever since the primary system was created, the two parties can present themselves as having internal dynamism through the primary process that is penetrable by civil society. So they can present themselves as open to these internal Uh, challenges. And that makes people much less likely to run third party. Uh, If they run third party in the states, they get uh, framed as spoilers. In other countries where you run third party, it's taken to be the case that, oh, one of the major parties is failing to keep its voter block happy. So that block is dividing. This shows that that party is weak and poorly run, right? right? In the UK, when UKIP gets going, this shows that the conservative party is failing to maintain internal discipline. It's losing voters to UKIP. And this means that the conservative party has to evolve or change and in some way dialogue with UKIP. And this ultimately results in the conservative party doing a referendum on Brexit that it would otherwise not have chosen to do and immolating itself in that process, uh, You know, an mm-hmm. ongoing process of immolation. In the States, when somebody runs third party, this is framed as helping the opposite party uh, and right. even as potentially, uh, you know, an overtly, say, if you're doing it as a green, uh, an overtly right wing thing to do that someone like Cornell West is deliberately helping the other side for some reason, that he's a traitor or that whatever. Yeah, he is. I mean,
2: like, OK, like I support Cornell West in one way in that he's going to make it difficult for the Democrats. That's the reason I like him. He's running uh, outside of the Democratic Party. He's going to make it harder for Biden to get reelected at a time where I think Biden is probably Biden's administration is one of the most dangerous administrations I've seen in my lifetime. Um, So if that happens to mean that DeSantis or Trump or some other Republican becomes president for four years, that's a that's a penalty I'm willing to take. You know, like I but I don't think that that is the long term aim of Cornell West, and certainly not the, my long-term aim, but it's just like our choice isn't between, you know, uh, one-party state with the Republicans controlling everything and smashing their enemies, or one-party state with the Democrats in charge forever, smashing all their enemies and all opposition. I mean, it may seem like that, but in fact, you know, there are fissures within. Both parties and between the parties, and a uh, disruption may very well be a good thing, and it you know even a constitutional crisis could be if if there was a left that could understand it, might be uh, for the best in, in the long term. We can't expect every step forward to be one where we immediately feel good and it seems like everything's getting better, and like you know we're going to there's always trade-offs, but at the moment it's worth it to stop Biden from being reelected. Uh, and that means I'll vote for Cornell West or Kanye West. Either one, <laughs> you know, like. Uh, I don't
0: know about that other West. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's not running. Well, uh, <laughs> Alex, mm-hmm. I only really let you ask a couple of questions, which was just so uh, imprudent of me. Why don't you ask another one before we wrap up?
2: I want to talk about Twitter, my own woes a little bit, but you ask whatever you want, Alex. (laughs) Yeah, we'll make sure we get that in. Yeah.
1: Um, Well, you said the state, well, Zizek said the state is progressive. I just pulled out a reason maybe it could be. Um, Basically to do with, even though the fact that it's a surveillance state, it's moving in the direction where nothing's private. Um, Okay. (laughs) It's... You know how in sci-fi they have the concept of the hive mind or in religion, they have omniscience. Isn't Mm -hmm. that where the surveillance state is going so that even the controllers would be a kind of open book and any repression they'd try to pull off would be public domain? So I don't see how that they could keep minority control over this repressive surveillance. So in a way, everyone would be, yeah, everyone would see it and it would kind of be good. Well, I'll, uh, this is
2: where I feel like I'm in more comfortable terrain than the conversation has been bef- up to now, because I can enter the realm of science fiction and fantasy, and answer you with a Star Trek reference, which is that while it's true that in the original, not in the in the next generation of Star Trek with Patrick Stewart and all of that, the board were a hive was a hive mind, um, basically based on equal nodes. Uh, in the movies, there was a queen bee in the Borg. And uh, under capitalism, we're going to uh, always be in a condition where there's going to be a centralized authority forming around the concentration of capital. And when you uh, allow that to be the state, and what you have is a monopoly capitalist state with the power of armies and the monopoly on violence so uh the state isn't going to create conditions where where like you know this uh kind of a smithian vision of communi- free communication between uh, uh, you know billions of equal drones participating as one and yet independently but rather the state is going to have a centralized, you know, the the capitalist state is a centralized uh, uh, authority that can then set the framework for all the drones, and any thought that deviates from it can just be cast out of the network, and that's what we're seeing now. So,
1: you know, the the it, that's
2: that's my answer.
1: Hmm. I guess maybe a segue into the social media stuff because Ben had an idea for. Um, a state or a centralized or a state social media and my knee-jerk reaction at the time was oh that's the most repressive thing ever a monopoly maybe i can give ben a chance to explain that but or maybe just move on to twitter
0: yeah oh i just i had an old idea a while back that uh, if we had a publicly run social media company then that publicly run social media company would be overtly subject to the first amendment in a way that these privately run companies cannot be. Uh, The fact that the companies are nominally privately run gives them this out. I'm privately run, therefore this is a private space, therefore I can police the space. But if you had a publicly run company, it would be much harder for that company to do many of the kinds of things that these social media companies do. Uh, And if you made, say, the algorithms that that company runs on transparent and open to some kind of democratic uh, revision, we yeah. would have a little bit more control over the kind of discussion we're having.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. And do- the only thing I'd say is that the reason I don't like prioritize that and what I'm writing and, and thinking about these days is because to create uh, such a publicly run social media platform, that would be then half necessarily transparent and limited by the U.S. Constitution, like a U.S. version of a of, a, of this Um the the what that demands of people who are trying to organize for that is participation within the bourgeois parties with a, a positive political program, and that means like we're we, you're, you're almost inevitably drawn to the question: Well, which party is more likely to be open to implementing this policy that I want to see achieved? And the answer to that changes based on you know, you know it might be the Republicans right now, but. I have very little faith that they would really hold to that, um, because to do that would would be would face a tremendous amount of opposition from the financial sector and from you know the most powerful capitalists in the country, and uh, and it might be the Democrats, but they're not really going to do it either. What either party would might do is sort of allow for a f- faction within their party to put this forward as a possible idea, that then. It's quickly shunted to the side when they they used it well enough to get to maintain their power. I just don't want to be sheepdogged back into either bourgeois party based on any policy promises, regardless of what they might be. Um, I don't I don't you know, I don't have confidence that any political project coming out of the current established political forces are going is going to be able to deliver really at all and. Certainly not on something as transformative as that, but you know, in theory, I would agree with you that that would be a fine thing to do if we could have a a a state-run social media company limited by the the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, transparent to the public, um, and you know, who knows what else would need to be thought through to create the right kinds of algorithm for it to to what extent uh, each. Part of it would have a kind of local character. Uh, to, to what degree, um, you know, access would be uh, guaranteed for all citizens, and so forth. But, but yeah, in theory, that's a fine thing. It just the politics of it prohibit really investing in it. Just like you know, Medicare for all. Okay, I think that's better than what we have. But I'm not going to take that bait to get reinvolved as a socialist and bourgeois capitalist parties.
0: Now, I do talk about policy much less than I used to do you know, 10 years or so ago, Yeah, part because I just don't see any uh, movement which is actually capable of delivering any kind of policy I'd like to see. Yeah. Uh, but let's, uh, before we, we finish up, let's talk a little bit at the end here about, you know, exactly what happened to you on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Well,
2: I'll start by saying um, that I got suspended from Twitter for a tweet that, if taken at face value, was, you know, in violation of the terms of service Uh, that I but it was a sarcastic tweet and taken in the context of my overall output on Twitter and the kinds of conversations I had with the person I was tweeting at, the account I was tweeting at, you know, should be read as sarcastic. and And if I was to be suspended, it shouldn't have been a permanent suspension. And I don't think I should have been suspended at all. What I'll, I'll tell you what the tweet was. Someone, uh, uh, an account called Post Left Watch uh, was tweeting about Brianna Joy Gray giving RFK Jr. a platform to spout COVID vaccine misinformation and declaring that Brianna Joy Gray was somehow like, I don't know, a member of the alt-right or somehow a traitor for giving this hooligan RFK a, a platform and that was dangerous to have given him a platform to spread COVID-19 misinformation. And uh, I had been arguing on various parts of Twitter for the need to withstand disinformation, in a, you know, and instead think of it as legally protected speech. Um, and when I saw this tweet at Priyanka Joy Gray, of all people, about a major political candidate within the Democratic Party being given a platform um, it seemed so barbaric and authoritarian to me that I tweeted a barbaric and authoritarian reply in, as a parody, or, you know, sarcastically. So what I said was, uh, why is this even allowed? RFK Jr. should be shot. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, reading that, you know, out of context, without my caveats and explanations, yeah, that's a pretty extreme thing to say. But I, I literally meant... You know, the people who are tweeting that you shouldn't be given a platform are bar- bar- barbaric and authoritarian, and this is where this kind of thinking leads, is sort of what I was aiming at, but I said it in that way, and I should have said something much more completely than that, and I was angry at the time, um, but I was not angry at RFK,
0: <laughs> so um, so that's what happened. But it, Do you I, think that uh, Twitter ultimately banned you permanently because of your other political positions or because Twitter doesn't have the capacity or resources to take the context into account and so makes lazy and sloppy decisions?
2: I think the second thing is true, but I think it's a combination because I think that tweet, I tweeted it out at least weeks earlier before the suspension, possibly months earlier. I I don't remember, but long enough ago that I had forgotten about the tweet. So when I was suspended, I had no idea why I would, had been suspended and I I was surprised. It was not like I tweeted that out and the next day I was suspended. It was weeks or months later. Um, So what I think happened was people who got angry with what I was saying on Twitter went back through all my tweets and found something to report. And that was the one that they reported. That's my best guess as to what happened. Um, And there were many people angrier with me (laughs) uh, by that point. I tweeted at AOC, that she, as a public figure, had to accept that there would be parody accounts and she couldn't call upon Twitter or the, the government to censor the the parody accounts that were mocking her. When she had tweeted out something that intimated that she was looking for some sort of legal uh, action against this account uh, or some sort of remedy. And I basically said, you can't, there is no remedy, you're a public figure. And... Um, AOC supporters dog me and created a parody account of my of, of my own account uh, that would tweet out nasty things like uh, or and you know uh, supposedly humiliating things that I was not saying but they were claiming you know that the parody account was saying um, the big one was uh, I love to drink cum they created a parody account of my account that tweeted that out and. Uh, I thought that was homophobic and uh, not at all effectual in terms of making me feel humiliated. But it was a, that had happened, and a lot of people would tweet at me, "Why do you love Cum?" <laughs> um, so uh, the the level of hostility I was facing on Twitter was relatively high. It, I, I, it was weird though, because it didn't have the same character as the kinds of attempts at cas- cancellation that I had faced in the past. It was more sporadic. Uh, and it was it, it, it I wasn't ratioed uh, very much. Um, it was just it, yeah. It, I I was I was rubbing a lot of people the wrong way, but I wasn't bringing on an onslaught the way I had in the past when like I defended Dave Chappelle, for instance. Um, this was this was it, it was different. It was persistent, aggressive tweets. But not did it, it had a different character? I'm not quite sure what why it had such a different character.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's very difficult for people to get the word out these days about anything. And if you can get tripped up in this kind of way, right, it it just makes it very difficult to get any kind of new political project going, whether that's a new party or a magazine or anything else anybody might want to build. If increasingly nobody communicates in person or by letter or Mm -hmm. uh, and people don't interact with each other in public it becomes really really difficult to organize anything without going through these platforms that are increasingly very unreliable right Uh, but you are on threads now right i'm on threads and i have an
2: instagram and i'm on facebook facebook is really kind of dead, but I still use it. And um, I'm on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel. Um, I've started a rumble. Uh, You know, I I have a variety of different places where my work and the people who work with me, their work appears. Um, And yeah, I'm hopeful I can get reinstated on Twitter. You know, I have more people who watch my YouTube videos and who read my tweets, so I don't feel like the Twitter suspension was, uh, you know, a a death sentence. Like, I don't feel like, we we haven't suffered as a company tremendously because of that suspension, but I did notice that it's hard to, like, for instance, the last letter I got published in Cosmonaut, I have no idea what the reaction to it has been, because I don't have Twitter, and no one's talking about it on threads, and the first two, the first letter got you know, a few people to re- respond. There was a conversation on, on Twitter about the first letter. Um, so it, it is a setback, but it's not the end of the world. Uh, but I don't have a lot of
0: faith in threads either. So I don't really know. No. Zuckerberg does tend to push political stuff down the algorithm. And some of the influencers who he launched threads with you know, straight out and said that this was what they were going to do, that they were going to push political content down the algorithm to keep threads a positive place. So I don't see... Uh, the meta empire coming to anybody's rescue? No, in the near future. No,
2: and and yeah. it's, ab- it's absurd to, to. I mean, one of the things about Twitter, even when it was run by Jack Dorsey, even when it was very much a liberal platform, it was definitely a place to get news and to t- have political conversations, even if they were constrained to some degree, and they became more and more constrained. But to, I don't know what people will use Threads for ultimately if 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 it's going to have the ethos of of Instagram you
0: know like <laughs> if it's probably gonna tra- to follow celebrities follow entertainers and athletes uh, that's which is i think broadly what they use Instagram to do right i think that's probably where it's headed yeah uh, you know, it's but, but the, I, I, I can't the imagine trying to get going
2: the, i think the journalists and the political class ultimately wants a space like twitter where debates happen even if they want to smash their Opponents in those spaces, in various ways, they don't really want political conversation altogether to go away. So I don't know what's going to happen next, but I understand Twitter is throttling how many com- how many tweets you can see a day now.
0: Like it- they did that briefly. I haven't noticed it since the initial day that they started doing it. But I haven't. Uh, they did do it, and I noticed it the first day they did it, and after that, I haven't noticed any issues since. Uh, yeah, they're. I can, I think, insofar as people are listening to this, if you're listening, you're benefiting from the fact that I started on the internet long enough ago that to some degree I'm grandfathered in. Uh, I think we're all, if we started 10 years ago, to some degree grandfathered into the internet, if I were trying to get going with a WordPress blog now, that would be a completely hopeless enterprise. Uh, Right for, for me. I, I don't think I could have this podcast if I were born ten years later and have any significant number of people listening to it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I have a podcast that I started in two thousand nine, and so it's kind of grandfathered in. It doesn't have huge numbers, but it has consistent downloads. You know, one to two thousand downloads a week, um, and I have. But I did. I did build up a YouTube channel to ninety thousand subscribers. And then have that taken away through a corporate m- merger um, and uh, had to start again. So we're at 11,000 uh, subscribers on our new YouTube channel. Um, but that, even there, I had was able to do that because people were, knew me from the first one and uh, people followed me over. Not not as many as I would have liked, but some people followed me over to the new one. Um, uh, I had been on Twitter for a long time and, you know, without. Taking it seriously as a real effort, uh, I built it up to 8,000 followers. Uh, I spent a lot of time on the old zero books Twitter and built it up from nothing to 25,000, uh, followers. Um, but that was, you know, once the corp- in the corporate merger, I didn't, that wasn't mine anymore either. Um, so yeah, I am set back a bit, uh, as far as the institute, like, you know, my, I'm not as grandfathered into the internet as I was. I am starting over in some domains, but not on the podcast, um, and not entirely on YouTube. And we do have a you know the new website driving some traffic, and I have, and most importantly, the uh, kind of an informal network of relationships with people in the media sphere, which is really important as well. But if you don't have those connections and you just are starting from scratch and you're trying to build something, this is a terrible time in, in a lot of ways to do it, unless you want to do Something that is already going with the, you know, with the trends. which case, who knows? You could blow up.
0: And that was me when I was 19. I was just blogging as an undergraduate student, just going along, uh, blogging a lot, a lot of stuff that wasn't all that good. Uh, But I imagine that if I just did it for long enough and enough of it, that eventually I would get better at it and I would develop a following. That there was some kind of meritocratic aspect to it, that if I just kept going... I I would eventually benefit from. I don't think I would describe the Internet that way today. I think if I was talking to myself from 10 years ago, I would not advise myself to do what I did.
2: Hmm. Well, but I mean, what would you do? I mean, if you want to be a writer or in some way involved with the media, you know, your options are, are used to be greater if you had some independent online platform that you built alongside of whatever more traditional uh, career you're trying to build. Um, and, and with Substack and other platforms, that seemed to be even more the case. Um, but everything right now seems very much to be in a chaos and I don't know uh, what's going to happen next, but I, I would certainly not discourage people from making an effort to create you know, essays and little films and podcasts because you know the alternatives to not do it and i guess what get a job in accounting or
0: i mean yeah i i certainly think people should do it i i guess what i'm saying is i i wouldn't know how to advise myself about how to distribute it in such a way that anybody would see any of it
2: yeah i guess i would say the main thing is do not let the uh political that's been then transposed onto these different platforms dictate what platforms you go on. Like start a substack, even though some people on the left think that's a right-wing platform. Start a rumble, even though that's even more universally considered to be a, a right-wing platform. Um, don't limit yourself to one kind of audience only in the on the internet. Diversify and see who is interested. Um, that doesn't mean change your message to fit an audience, it just means put yourself in front of multiple different kinds of audiences and don't don't get too attached to one or in, on another particular platform would be my advice. That's what I'm telling myself anyway.
0: Yeah, I think when people get overly attached to a specific audience, the tail starts to wag the dog and they start to make content for that audience rather than on the basis of what they really think is true or good or valuable. And that is always the road to hell.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've had arguments with my own patrons about the free speech issue that didn't get better and they quit, you know, like and I didn't back down. And I've had people, patrons say, OK, enough about disinformation. And I, you know, it's like, OK, I'll, I'll do some other things a bit, but I'm not going to stop talking about this particular issue because it's it's to me the central issue of the moment it there are no other political issues if we don't have the right to organize and think politically there just isn't politics anymore if this holds
0: i think that's a a good and a good place to uh, leave things for today so thank you guys so much for listening uh thanks doug for coming in thanks alex even though i didn't let you ask enough questions And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Okay.
1: Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.